I have a propositional statement for you that I think is quite true. Here it is. The ability to learn from one's past is a critical step toward making good use of the present. For example, uh, consider this wonderful reminder letter I received recently from Cindy Sharp, member of my pulpit team. She wrote and said, Wayne, over the years I have been gobsmacked. Is that a great verb or what? I have been gobsmacked by God's perfectly timed provision. He manages to provide exactly what I need before I even know I need it. I've come to understand provide for our daily bread to mean just that. He has a plan for us. He has jobs ready in advance for us to do. He also has the means and the will to provide the tools we need for those jobs when we need them. Each time I'm down to the last of something, my bottom dollar, the final drop of gas in my car's tank, the end of my patience, I am reminded that God is there. He has my back, and all will be well. Amen? Have you ever experienced this as well, the, the first part of it? If, let's do this. If you've ever seen God provide for you, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Ever seen God provide for you, raise your hand. All right, very good. Um, me too, thanks. But, hands down, most of the time I'm not like Cindy. You see, often when I get down to the last of something, I develop a provisional amnesia. I, I seem incapable of remembering all God's past blessings. I, I sometimes panic, and I act as if my current crisis has caught God by surprise, proving that unlike Cindy, I have not yet effectively internalized the wonderful lessons of my past. And that can be tragic, because without the lessons of my past, the, the present can be wasted. Remember, the ability to learn from one's past is a critical step toward making good use of the present. And the ability to learn from the past of other people is also a remarkable blessing. Such is the declaration of this guy, Leonard Moldenoff, uh, in his book, The Upright Thinkers. Now, Dr. Moldenoff is one of those great minds with whom I very often disagree. Um, I think what bothers me most is he, can't, he doesn't seem capable of seeing the ridiculous gaps in his own logic, which is very likely what he would say about me as well. Um, misguided as he can be, Moldenoff can be brilliant. And I want to show you one of his most brilliant statements. He says this. He says, written language is a defining trait of human civilization and one of its most important tools. It made possible a vast accumulation of knowledge, a way to build upon the past. In doing so, it allowed us to outgrow the limits of our individual knowledge and memories. He is right. The ability to learn from my past and that of others is a remarkable blessing. And thus, you know what history becomes? History becomes nothing less than the life-changing gift of God to the present. In fact, Learning from history is the cornerstone concept with which the Apostle Paul closes out uh, the section of 1 Corinthians that we're in. The, the second section of 1 Corinthians ends in, verse, in chapter 10. So open your Bible, if you would. Uh, let's wrap up this second section of 1 Corinthians and uh, read chapter 10. Open your Bible to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Let's read 1 through 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things became examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters, as so some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play, <clears throat> or dance, uh, a quote from 
from Leviticus. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. On a single day, 23,000 people fell dead, a reference to a, a scene in Numbers. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes, another scene from Numbers. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Stop there. As you'll see in your uh, worship guide you got, we title this section, Wisdom from Our Forebears' Freedom. We learn wisdom from our forebears' freedom. The whole context is the greatest freedom moment in political human history. Greatest freedom moment in history. The Apostle Paul is referring to the exodus from Egypt when an entire people group were granted miraculous freedom. Overnight, their slavery ended. It was, without a doubt, the most miraculous, immediate, and far-reaching change moment in political history. Folks, the Exodus has inspired so many, many other great moments of freedom, like, like, like uh, Luther's stand at Augsburg, directly tied to Exodus and what he understood from that. The Declaration of Independence, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, on and on and on. All these things are branches on the freedom tree of Exodus, and it's intriguing to see which particular aspects of that tree God inspired Paul to reference, okay? You'll notice he talks about the cloud. You see that? The cloud, if you know Exodus, is the very presence of God that was with Israel. What's the sea? Anybody know what the sea is in Exodus? Yeah, it's, the, what is it? That's right, the Red Sea. When it parts because they cross the, the Red Sea, uh, it allowed the Hebrews to escape Pharaoh's attack strike force that he had sent after them. Passing through those waters of the cloud and the sea, they have a new identity. They, they move from slaves to free people, from people with no internal law structure to a society shaped by the greatest code ever developed, the Mosaic Law. Again, this becomes an indelible inspiration for all of human history. Think about this. Every single story you have ever read that is written since 1400 B.C., since the exodus of Egypt, carries that same idea forward whether they mean to or not. Every time somebody passes through water in any literature you read, it represents an internal change. They are different as a result of passing through that water. It shows that there is an internal difference about them. You, you see this in every baptism. You see it in every scene of passing through water in Shakespeare and, and in Melville and Dostoevsky and Faulkner and Hemingway and on and on and on. Now, Paul takes this great image of freedom, this change picture, and he draws out both a positive and a negative reminder. The positive reminder is bond with God. God provided safe water for Israel, he says, during their journeys out of Egypt. And by the way, that was no mean feat. Do you realize how many mouths needed water in that incredible multitude? And Yahweh granted the grumbling Israelites food. What was the name of the food he gave them? Manna, that's right. Except for the one time he gave quail, he gave manna, bread from heaven. Uh, these are combined. Paul uses these as a picture for the New Testament Lord's Supper that you, just, that you just took. The bread and the water for Israel were miraculously provided so that God's undeserving people could bond with him who provides what they needed most. Likewise, in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate how Jesus bonds with his people. He changes us by his miraculous provision. Jesus provides the thing we need most. What do we need most? Him him. That's what we need. we need. We need the sacrificial, perfect atonement for our sins. Now, Paul even plays off of two really powerful scenes in the Exodus to emphasize how Jesus is God's great provision. Number one, Moses struck a rock. Remember that story? Huge springs of water come out that, that give water to all of the people. And number two, the presence of God followed them all throughout the Exodus. Each of these is a type of Jesus who is the rock of salvation. 
He is the provider, the protector, the one from whom flows streams of living water. So think, we who are scared, we who are spiritually hungry, who are soul thirsty, why would we reject the living water of Jesus? Learn from Israel. The positive reminder is turn to God and bond with him. He is your provider. He is your provision. He is the rock who gives living water. When we don't learn and deepen our bond with God, we're we're like a man dying of thirst who pours out water. It's insane, which takes us to the negative reminders. There are four, four in Paul's summary, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and grumbling, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Each and all of these are wordings about misusing your freedom. First is idolatry. Verse 7 references the, the Israelites' blatant idolatry committed through many means, uh, most infamously through the golden calf incident. They were free. They were free, but they used that freedom to make a pagan idol. That means that they made something they could control because paganism is all about getting what we want by following the rules that will control and placate the deity. And like all idolatry, paganism allows people to think they are spiritual, they are deep, and they are noble, while in reality, they are merely self-centered toddlers playing pretend. Thank goodness we're never like that. We don't ever try to control God. We don't ever pretend to be spiritual while actually warping spirituality so that everything's all about us. But we do, don't we? We idolize self. We make everything about our own pleasure. And if God wants more for us, we shake our fist at him and we make a God after our own image, which is always a bunch of bull. This is especially seen, I couldn't resist, this is especially seen in sexual immorality. And it has always been that way, which is why the text goes there directly in verse 8. Verse 8 refers back to Numbers 25, where Yahweh was so disgusted with the Israelites' sexual sin that he sent a plague. It killed 24,000 people, 23,000 just on the first day, the rest in the following days. And that's because that's what sexual immorality does. It kills. Oh, you're free. You are free to abuse your sexual freedom, but the price is very high. When you abuse your sexual freedom, it kills your identity. It kills your relationships, your health, your job, your future, and quite frankly, it can kill your life. Don't misuse your freedom. Now, verse 9 refers to Numbers 21, where we learn that the Israelites tested God. You need to catch this. The word used in the great Greek translation of the Old Testament is perazo. It's going to be a very important word for our study today, so you get to practice it on the count of three, perazo. One, two, three, very good, perazo. It's a sneaky word. Uh, in the context in Numbers, it, it means to, to push or to try to trap someone. It's to try and set a trap for somebody. In this case, the Hebrews were, were testing God. They were pushing God. Remember when you were a kid and you tried to find a chink of any kind you could in your parents' armor? Do you remember that? You wanted to find a weakness. What was their weakness? What was their problem? So that you could you use that. You could manipulate that to set a trap for them so you could get what you wanted, right? I was exceptionally good at this. My dad, when I was a small child, called me the stinking little lawyer. No offense to you attorneys out there, which are wonderful. He called me the stinking little lawyer, and I would always try to undermine my parents or trap them. I would use their own words against them. You said da-da-da-da and use it against them in order to get what I wanted. So daddy instituted a new rule. I was about six when he put in a new rule. Up to that point... Uh, spanking was done in our home, but it was prohibited to what the Bible says it's to be for. Corporal punishment is for out-and-out rebellion. That's what it's supposed to be for. But Dad said, you know what? From now on, whenever you try to set little traps for us, whenever you're a stinking little lawyer, that's a spanking offense. But, but that's not the law. 
From now on it is, son, because that is out-and-out out rebellion when you do that. So the next time I got, I didn't believe him, of course, so the next time I got my dad to say yes to something to which mommy had already said no, oh, gosh, would have never been a spanking fence before. Uh, the next time that I, that I uh, took their words and I managed to, to put them together and, and say that you're not really doing this right, I belittled their leadership, pow, that was a spanking offense. I learned my lesson and stopped. I got my brother to do it instead. <laughs> but the Hebrews really did learn. They tried to undermine God's leadership. You know what he did? His spanking was he sent poisonous snakes into their camps. They were only saved by the suffering symbol that God designed. They, they, they lifted on high, on a high pole, a bronze representation of their sin, a, a snake. And those who trusted God, the text says, and looked on it, they were saved. Of course, this is another type of Jesus, isn't it? Who became the, the carrier of our sin high on that cross. And those who trust in him are saved. But this is so convicting. Look, look at this. Paul says that we Christians can be even worse than Israel in the way we undermine and test God. Look, he uses ek perazo. He takes that Old Testament word for pushiness, and he adds ek to it. Ek is an intensive. Uh, it intensifies something. It's, it's like uber in German or very uh, in English. We Christians, possessors of God's own spirit, we have less excuse than Israel, and yet we can undermine God's authority even more than they. We are ek perazo. And if he loves us, he must punish us. That's what loving parents do. We're also expert at the fourth highlighted sin of Israel, which is grumbling. Uh, verse 10 reminds us that at Mara and other spots, the Hebrews grumbled. They whined terribly. Again, I can grumble. I am free to do so, but it's incredibly harmful to me and to all those around me. Mm. Paul chooses deadly examples from history on purpose, folks, because these activities kill, including grumbling. It kills. It, let, let's do this. If, if you have ever seen whining or grumbling kill an organization, if you've ever seen grumbling or whining kill a relationship, an ability, a human spirit, just defeat a human spirit because of grumbling and whining, raise your hand, please. Raise your hand. Keep your hands up. <clears throat> Surely all you teachers have your hands up. All right. Uh, keep your hands up really high. Look around, people. Look around. Look around. Look at all those hands. That is a lot of hands. Hands down. Learn from those people and remember that grumbling kills. Now, lest looking at the past beat you down so much that you have a false sense of inevitable failure, reading this, the text now takes a more positive turn. Paul next shows that we are free to succeed. We are free to succeed. All God's people said, amen. That's the headline on the right side of our notes. It's also the issue in verses 13 through 15. Go there. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you're able to bear it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, not only do people test God, not only do we do that to him, we are always undergoing tests of our own. Look at the words Paul uses. Look, here's our friends again. Look, trial or temptation, that's parosmos. That's a, a noun form of our friend perazo. And perazo appears in the verb form as tempted in, in my text. Remember, perazo is to, is to push or to try and trap somebody. Perosmos is the noun for that. It's the trap itself. This is so clever. God and Paul are throwing down some really tight, brilliant writing here. What we in our foolishness throw at God is actually being thrown at us all the time. In fact, perazo is used three times to emphasize the battles we face. 
You know, modern people tend to forget the biblical reality that we have three very serious battles all the time, every day. Yes, we, if we trust Jesus, are guaranteed heaven, but on the way, the devil really does hate us. The devil and his demons hate you if you're a Christian. It's a biblical fact. And they are always trying to set parosmos for you. The world system, not any particular government, any particular thing, but just the, the very broken world system, is a, it sets traps as well. Some of those are very graphic and obvious. Others are more subtly alluring. All of them lead to death and decay. And, of course, our own flesh pursues us. Our, our sin nature is almost certainly the biggest crafter of parosmos in our lives. This is common to humanity. Everyone deals with it. Do you struggle with keeping your eyes off of pornography? Welcome to the party, pal. Do you you find yourself emotionally up and down? Do you you have a, a hard time with fiscal discipline? Do you feel oppressed for no visible reason? So does everybody else. Everyone does. No, now we don't all experience the same parosmos in the same way all the time. But whatever you struggle with, it is common to humanity. In other words, on this planet, there is no escaping the traps of pushy sin. They are always there. Are you depressed yet? Don't be. Don't be. Because God says we're free to succeed. Look look at the rest of the thought. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you're able to bear it. I once coached a very talented wrestler uh, whom we'll call Steve. Steve did not lose a match his junior and senior years except to one opponent. One opponent, a dude with the sinister last name of McCracken. Um, And for some reason, whenever they released the McCracken, Steve just couldn't win. He lost to him every time, including in the state semifinals his junior year and in a tournament very early in Steve's senior year. And this bothered me a lot because when I watched the film of these two wrestlers, it was evident Steve was the better wrestler. McCracken was good, but Steve was better. But for some reason, he just couldn't seem to beat this guy. So I made it my mission that Steve's senior year, he was going to beat McCracken. And I I set that as my goal. I I pulled Steve aside every practice. All we worked on were McCracken. I studied the guy, and I taught Steve all of McCracken's weaknesses. And then I, I reminded Steve of his own capacities. He really had good talent, very good speed. And I provided him that he had a way to get victory over his nemesis. I even enlisted a guy on our team to help, a guy on the B team who wasn't going to get to be in many tournaments. He studied McCracken with me, and he started imitating McCracken's favorite moves so that Steve could actually practice sort of against McCracken himself. Most of all, this is the most important thing, I helped Steve break down his false view of McCracken. The kid was good, but Steve had made him into this larger-than-life figure. So when we went to state, these two guys met again, and they met once again just like the year before in the state tournament semifinal. But this time, Steve didn't collapse. It was obvious he had begun to believe me. He saw McCracken's crafty traps. He was a very crafty kind of wrestler. He saw them, and he avoided them, and he wrestled his own match. It was a very hard contest. It went to double overtime, but Steve won! He won! Can Steve get some applause, please? It was fantastic. He had the victory in the same way. You can win, Christian. You can win. You have the moves to escape your wrestling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You can persevere to victory. Oh, not because of you. Not because of your own power. Goodness, no. You win because of God. The coach is for you. He doesn't remove you from the contest, but he always provides a way for you to win. You just have to listen to his coaching and discipline yourself for godliness, all God's people said. And one of the most important tools he provides is understanding about idolatry. 
Verse 14 is not some separate thought. It is a very important connected idea. It's so funny. Christians will read 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and stop there as if it's an end of a thought. But there's a therefore. Verse 14 is actually a continuation. You see, when we are, when we are perazo, when we are pushed, trapped, tempted, tried, we tend to make an idol out of our opponent. F- follow, follow the logic here. Why go into idolatry in verse 14? Because we're all just like Steve. When a particular parosmos gets our number, when, it, when that happens, we tend to see it as larger than life, as something that is unbeatable, right? Why do I call that idolatry? Because anything you revere other than God is an idol. Anything you revere other than God is an idol. And that is true whether you desire something so much that you revere it or whether you are terrified of it, you desire to flee it, but don't think you can. So, for example... Uh, this is a very materialistic time of year in our, in our particular culture. So let's think about materialism real quickly. There's, there's two ways that we idolize materialism. Sometimes we slobber over material things that we really want, right, kids? Right. Sometimes we're sobbing because we just can't control our materialism, and, and we have either way begun to revere the material. You're declaring its worth. You're declaring its power. That's idolatry. Only God is worthy of praise. Only God is all-powerful, and He is for you. Turn to Him. Rely on His Spirit who is in you and win. Win. One of my oldest friends called uh, from my old hometown, he called one night many years ago. This poor guy had randomly bumped into his old high school flame that day, just randomly bumped into her, and the chemistry still bubbled. Oh, it was weird and intense. He went home, and he called me, and he told me all about it, and he said, Wayne, the worst part is my wife's out of town on business, and I know this girl. She, she's the old flame. She's going to stop by here tonight, and I, I don't know what to do. I just asked him point blank. I said, do you want to commit adultery? Is that what you want? Do you want that taint in your life and in your family and in your sphere of influence? Is that what you want? And he said, no, no, man, I don't, but I'm scared. I don't think I can win this fight. The pull was, the pull was really strong, man. I told him I understood. I said, you know, the problem is you have made an idol out of this woman. She is looming larger than your God. And I went on and I said, it's really simple, dude. It is really simple. God has given you the strategy. He says, flee immorality. Flee. Make like Monty Python and run away, run away. I told him to get out of there. In fact, I said specifically, I want you to get your fanny over to my parents' house right now. Mom's there. Dad will be home in just a few minutes. You go there and don't tell anybody that's where you've gone, and you spend the night there. And he did. And he called his wife as soon as he got there, and he told her what he was dealing with and asked her to pray for him. And he won! My friend won! He had, can he get some applause too? Thank you. He had victory. That's how you beat all temptations. You stop idolizing them, and you listen to the coach. You do what God says, and you let your team help you. All God's people said? Now, read the next part, verse uh, 16. Pick it up at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for, talking about the Lord's table again, that's the image, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? What am I saying then? The food offered 
to idols as anything or that an idol is anything. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice is sacrificed to demons and not to God. I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we, are we stronger than he? Stop there. We're free in Jesus. But syncretism, Paul is saying, syncretism is a waste of that freedom. Let me explain. No, would take too long. Let me sum up. <laughs> Suffice it to say, Paul is developing again this Lord's table image from earlier, and he's using it to make a very painful point. We who are in Christ, we who participate in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus as memorialized in communion, we waste our freedom when we also participate in idolatry. When we try to combine our identity in Jesus with any other worldview, we're practicing syncretism. In case you don't know the word, syncretism is the dangerous combination of things that just cannot work together, like Wiley, Coyote, and Dynamite, or, or, or Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, the, the things that just can't work together. In essence... When we participate in the idolatry of the world around us, and we tend to do so, we are acting exactly like Israel when they begged Moses to let them go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Did you know that? True story. You see, the Israelites found the, the battles of freedom very challenging, and so they repeatedly demanded that Yahweh send them back to slavery in Egypt. God, who loved them with a holy and exclusive jealousy, was very provoked by this stupidity, and he is by ours as well. Because we do the same thing. We re-enslave ourselves all the time, especially when we find the battles of freedom hard. And thus the Lord who loves us with a holy jealousy is stirred to intervene hard because he loves us. Think about it like this. Imagine you're on a church ski trip. Pastor Jeremy, wild idea. You're on a church ski trip, okay? And uh, you're on a long run, and you pull over about halfway down, catch your breath for a second, and, uh, and then imagine you take off one of your skis and you grab a snowboard. Okay, now I don't know where it came from. You're imagining. Okay, so you grab the snowboard and, and you move your ski and you, you put your foot in that big huge boot of the snowboard and you strap on your right foot in the snowboard, your left foot still on the ski. And you try and ski down the hill with one foot in a snowboard and the other foot in a ski. How's that going to work out? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Not well at all. In the immortal word, the only word of the Surfari's hit song, it's a... You're going to wipe out, right? So Christian friends, when we engage in things that don't fit us, we're destined to wipe out. When you get drunk, which the Scripture expressly prohibits, when you cheat, when you blame others, when you try to earn God's justification, when you pretend that no sin is really wrong, when you make your happiness priority number one, you are binding your leg to a demonic worldview that is antithetical to who you are in Jesus. It's a waste of freedom, and it is a wipeout waiting to happen. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. In that, in that snowboarder voice that you love to throw down, you're saying, so, so dude, like, uh, like, what's the boundary, man? I mean, how do I, like, know what, where the edge of the run is? Like, how do I know I'm using my freedom, like, the right way? Thank you for asking. Great question. Paul anticipated your question. He actually answers it right away before you can even ask it in verse 23. Go to verse 23 where he says, everything is permissible. Now, this is a quote from Corinth. He's quoting them. Everything's permissible, but not everything's helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Paul, again, he's done this a couple of times in this letter. He mockingly quotes the Corinthians' own letter to him, and he answers logically to show that the boundary of human freedom is edification. It's profound but very simple. 
If something builds up, if it makes everything better and stronger, it's within the boundary. Everything else is an abuse of freedom. This was a huge discussion point among our Puritan forebears. Um, now, sadly, they sometimes erred in their thinking because they became terrified that people were going to throw out the Old Testament or that people were going to be licentious fools, and, and I understand that, but, but I'm proud of them that at least they had the discussion. They did, by the way, stick to Paul's big idea here. The Puritans said, if something is truly edifying, you are free to enjoy it. Oh, you can do anything, but if it's unhelpful, that's not very smart, is it? Let's consider snowskiing again. Can I choose to jump off the side of the mountain if I wish? Yeah. Is that very wise? No, probably not. Probably not a good idea. You know, it's not wise. By the way, this is a mark of maturation. Immature people do whatever they want to do without regard for what is best for them or for others. They just, they just, they just go on impulse. When you and I first began school, we said what was ever in our minds, right? Remember that? Uh, it's what kindergartners do. Teacher is up, and she's writing a sentence about a horse from a book that she's reading. She writes a sentence about a horse. Immediately, what does your whole class do? Mommy says she's scared of horses. I want a horse. Your mom's stupid. Oh, she says stupid. Horses stink. I rode a horse once. On and on and on, right? That's what you do. Now, those may be genuine comments, but it was so real. Yeah, but they're not helpful. In fact, they're the opposite. They get everyone off of the good story and onto useless arguments. When you and I abuse our freedom in Jesus to indulge our desires, we're like kindergartners. We need to instead listen to the teacher Paul and to his story and get back to growing up in the book. Another member of our pulpit team, I am so blessed with a wonderful collaborative community. Look at this. Another one sent me a fabulous quote on this. Martin McDonald wrote me, and he said, Wayne, in the world's economy, a freed man is one who is free to pursue his own wants and desires. The focus is inward. My comfort, my peace, my hunger, my fulfillment, my satisfaction, my needs. We see this in newly liberated Israel through their looking back to slavery and grumbling about freedom. In God's economy, freedom is ideally expressed in love and through serving and blessing others. As we grow in our freedom, we ought to grow in our concern for the well-being, physical and spiritual, of others, even to the point of denying our rights for the sake of the spiritual well-being of others and the glorification of God. And those last two ideas there take us straight to Paul's closing of the chapter. Look at Paul's next point. The focus of freedom is serving others. Go, verse uh, 24. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's, quote from Psalm 24, and all that is in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food's offered to an idol, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for conscience sake. I don't mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I slandered because of something I give thanks for. You are free in Jesus. That means you should imitate him. What did he do? He gave up his own right to heavenly bliss in order to come to earth. He entered this messy bubble just to bring us peace. And we should do the same. We set aside our rights in order to bless others. Now, this text must be read with the cultural context in view. Paul specifically references an example. This, this by the way, is a huge issue in Corinth. Remember, the best and safest food in that whole area was what was offered on the huge altar of the pagan goddess up atop the great Acrocorinth, that huge hill above the town. But her worship 
was an incredibly nasty moray of ritual prostitution that very rightly disgusted the Christians. So the Christians battled back and forth about this. Was it okay to eat that meat or not? Paul says, look what he says, there's no food that should be forbidden. This is a huge statement from a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knows the Mosaic law is fulfilled. Christians are not bound by it. We can eat anything, but whatever we eat should be helpful to us in glorifying God with our bodies. And it must also be edifying to those around us. Look, in your text, Paul teaches us to be sensitive to non-Christians, right? Well, the same idea also applies to other Christians. Um, In the book of Romans, God says to us, don't indulge if you're going to cause some weaker brother to stumble. So, So let's say you love beer, okay? You'll say you love beer. It's not, now let me, let me set the boundaries here. It's not something to which you're addicted. Uh, you don't violate scripture and get drunk. In fact, you, you truly praise God for his blessings when you relax with an occasional beer. Okay, fine. But a member of your life group is alcoholic. And by the way, it is very, very likely that in any given life group that is the case. There's somebody who struggles with addiction. They're doing well, but they've asked you for prayer for their 1 Corinthians 10, 13 battle that they have to do every day to make sure that they have victory as they overcome that parosmos of addiction. They ask you for help and support. Okay, so that's the situation. You love beer. Remember, your life group's alcoholic. So when you go to your next life group meeting, do you take along beer? Yes or no? Please say no. Please say no. Please say no. <laughs> no, of course not. You don't, you don't do that. Heavens, No. Now, this paragraph must also be read with a linguistic context in mind. Don't forget, parosmos, that that pushy traps of life that's run through the whole chapter, right? When somebody tries to trap you by saying, oh, this was sacrificed to idols, they're trying to spring a trap on you. They're trying to embroil you in some fruitless discussion about what a Christian can or can't do. Just avoid the whole thing. Paul says, just give it up. What does it matter? I experience this sometimes when I travel in Latin America. Um, among some of the rural Christians there, playing cards, true story, playing cards are considered evil. Isn't that interesting? They're considered very, very evil. This is especially true among a number of the Indian tribes where many people have come to faith in Christ. You see, their background includes these witch doctors who cast spells using symbols that are very, very similar to the symbols on playing cards. So these, these Christian brethren are fearful of all cards. Now, do I have the right, biblically, to play cards when I'm on the long bus rides going up those mountains in Latin America? Yes or no? Do I? Sure. And if they ask me to discuss it, can we have a fruitful conversation? Sure we can, but let's suppose that one of my new brothers points to those cards and he says, those are evil. There is nothing gained by asserting my right or trying to correct him. We have more important things to do, right? Like study the Bible together, get to know each other. I set aside my cards because the focus of my freedom is to serve others, just as Jesus does. And that takes us to Paul's beautiful climax. Read the very last verses, um, the end of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11. Uh, Verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may all be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The point of freedom is God's glory. We do everything for God's glory. That is the best use of our freedom. It is indeed freedom's point, which is to bring honor to the one who set us free. Our church mission statement tries to capture this. Say it with me, please. Uh, You take the underlined part, if you would. Who are we, men and women? Who are we? We are redeemed community. What do we do? We do the Great Commission. 
That means going into all the world, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, everything he's told us. How is this done? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? What's our goal? The glory of God. As you can tell, we tried to take this mission statement from Scripture. We're a redeemed community doing Jesus' great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. The triune God is our focus. We're here to bring Him glory. This is true in our work, our homes, our choices, our sacrifices, our relationships. But, as you are surely asking in your uh, Hal computer voice from the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, but Dave, how does one praise God, Dave? Thank you so much for asking. It's an excellent question. Actually, another Dave answered it. Another member of my pulpit team, David Wade, uh, wrote me this week and reminded me about Thomas Watson's great sermon on what it means to glorify God. Um, I told you this passage was red meat for our Puritan forebears, and Watson did a masterful job with this passage. In fact, when David wrote me, I went back and I looked, and I actually referenced this sermon many years ago, but today I just want to summarize his four big ideas. Four big ideas of this brilliant sermon by Thomas Watson. He says, glorifying God consists in four things. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. And then he says this brilliant line, this is the yearly rent we pay to the crown of heaven. Hey, if you know Jesus, you're free. You're free from eternal separation from God. You're free from the penalty of sin in eternity. You are free to overcome sin in this earth. But are you using that freedom power for good? The Corinthians were not. Specifically, are you glorifying God in all you do? Do do the other people around you feel the warmth of that glory? They should. Listen to how Watson wrapped up his sermon. This, This is just fantastic. He said this, A good Christian is like the sun, which not only sends forth heat, but goes its circuit round the world. Thus, he who glorifies God not only has his affections heated with love to God, but he goes in his circuit too. He moves vigorously in the sphere of his obedience, close quote. In other words, we glorify God wherever we go. Look again at that list. Adoration, appreciation, appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. These are how we glorify God. These are how we use our freedom power for good. Now, at the end of your notes, look at the end of your notes. You'll see my explanation of Watson's four things that glorify God. Appreciation. What is appreciation? Well, appreciation is to set God highest in our thoughts and have a venerable esteem of Him. There's thousands of passages. I just chose Psalm 97. Adoration is giving God the worship that is due Him. That is His royal prerogative. Affection is loving God. Uh, the, the beautiful summary in Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with your all. And subjection is being dedicated to God. It's being dressed and ready to serve Him all the time. Now, where are you weak on that list? Look look at that list and think, where am I weak on that list? Where am I not using my power for good? Think about it, and with that in mind, let's pray for each other. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters because, quite frankly, um, Many of us realize that we do not appreciate you, at least not sufficiently, and that's to our detriment. We, uh, we, we, we actually live most of our lives as if the little things of this world that are so temporal and will not last as if they were the most important. We don't even give thought to you, and that's ridiculous and empty, and we're so sorry. And we ask you to help change that in us. 
Father, we pray about adoration, giving you the worship that is due your prerogative, to, to always be enjoying the fact that, that we don't give worth to idols, either in fear or in desire. We instead are we need help with this, Father. Please, all these parosmos, these traps for us, please help us. And Father, we pray that we will grow in affection, that we'll love you because you first loved us. And that the, the, the love of God will empower our love for God. And, I, and Lord, I pray for subjection. There's a whole lot of us that are not, we're not really dedicated to you. We're not dressed and ready to serve. I mean, we are sometimes maybe on Sundays, but, but not always ready in season, out of season, to make a defense for the hope that is within us. We need help in that. We need to change. So, Lord, I, I present this request that you will change me and my brothers and sisters that we might glorify you. And by the way, I pray most importantly, Father, for anybody who's studying with me that does not know Jesus as Savior, please, please draw them to you right now. Listen, we, you are a wipeout waiting to happen, and not just experientially, but eternally because of sin, just your own internal sin. But God loves you so much that he, Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the living water, he died for you. He is that symbol lifted on a cross high up on a pole. He became the very representation of your sin so that if you trust him, you can have everlasting life because he rose from the dead after he paid your price. Trust him right now. Accept him as your savior. If you just trusted Jesus, raise your hand. Look up at me and raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for all of, all of these precious brethren. And I pray that we will, Lord, please help us to use our power for good by glorifying you and serving others. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen.